In short, Mr. Wickfield has been for years deluded and plundered in every conceivable way to the financial advantage of the avaricious, false, and grasping... Oh, oh, no, my son will be humble, Mr. Copperfield, if you will just give him time to think. Where is my property? Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we travel in time and discuss our favorite albums song by song and spell by spell. I'm Mike DeFabio, and I'm here with Phil Maddox and Dan Watkins. And now it's time to turn it over to this week's host, Phil. What album do you have for us, Phil, and why did you pick it? I have picked Uriah Heep's 1972 LP, Demons and Wizards. And I picked it because... I feel sometimes Uriah Heep are kind of a band that's kind of fallen through the cracks, and I've listened to a bunch of their albums, and they're inconsistent, and they're really not one of my favorite bands, but like for a brief moment in the early 70s, they were excellent, and I think Demons and Wizards is just a fantastic kind of proto-hard rock heavy metal album that deserves more attention than it gets these days. So Phil, what is your personal history with Uriah Heep? Well, I had never heard of them until I read about them on George Starriston's Classic Rock Review website, where he basically just tore them to shreds. Yeah. So one day I saw uh, Demons and Wizards and The Magician's Birthday for sale cheap at a store. And I picked them up because they were very cheap and because they had those Roger Dean covers. And because, you know, I was kind of like, ah, let's give this a shot. I'm kind of curious what band made George Starriston this angry. And I listened to them a couple times. They didn't make a lot of an impression on me at the time. And then much later, I was just kind of digging through my albums and I dug up Demons and Wizards and I listened to them like, this is extremely good. Why did I like write this off before? And then I listened to The Magician's Birthday and I'm like, this is mostly good except for the title track, which is something. (laughs) Um, So yeah, then I I listened to Demons and Wizards a ton more times. I went and picked up a bunch more of their albums and... uh, Again, I never really fell in love with the band. Like, I eventually stopped before I got all their albums because I was like, well, I don't really actually enjoy these guys this much. But Demons and Wizards is still, you know, a pretty regular feature on my uh, uh, CD player because I still listen to CDs. (laughs) All right, Dan, how about you? I really have no history with Uriah Heep. Uh, My familiarity with them is entirely from just seeing their albums and record bins where they just seem to just materialize in the classic rock section (laughs) and... Seeing a couple of their more remarkably uninviting album covers just staring me in the face. <laughs> uh, Innocent Victim, the one with yeah, the big old I mean, snake. They, 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 they made an impression and not necessarily a good one. Um, Abominog, that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I just thought like, I guess this was just like a 70s also ran that just did not survive the filtering of classic rock radio because I... Up until two weeks ago, had never heard one of their songs. Just straight up, had not heard any of them. Um, 
And this is the only album of theirs I've heard to date, um, which is not necessarily a, a, a judgment on this album. But uh, but yes, I am about as fresh this band as you could possibly be. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat there. My entire familiarity with Uriah Heap for a long time was having read George Starston's reviews of them, and they did not make me want to run out and listen to them. <laughs> and as a guy in his late teens, early 20s, without a ton of money to spend on music... I was not curious enough to go out of my way to hear Uriah Heep. Now you've got streaming and you can just hear anything you're even slightly curious about. So one day I just decided, well, I'm going to see what Uriah Heep actually sounded like. And I listened to the opening track on this album, The Wizard. Oh, yes. And well, you're you're going to hear what I what I thought of that song. The rest of what I heard by Uriah Heep didn't quite live up to that. But I, I do think this album is, on the whole, very enjoyable, even if I'm never going to be like a big Uriah Heap fan or anything. But Phil, it looks like you're the only one here who knows anything about Uriah Heap. So why don't you tell us a little about him? Uriah Heep were formed in the late 1960s by guitar player and only consistent member of the band, Mick Box, though they went under the name Spice at the time. The group played a bunch of gigs and they recorded a bunch of songs that didn't get released at the time, but uh, they eventually got put out on a uh, archival release once the band got big enough that people started rooting through their garbage. The group eventually solidified under the name Uriah Heep, which was a character from the novel David Copperfield. In 1970, with the lineup of Mick Box on guitar, Ken Hensley on organ, David Byron on vocals, Paul Newton on bass, and Nigel Olson on drums, though he lasted approximately one album's worth of time. And then they released their debut LP, Very Heavy, Very Umble, in 1970, which, uh, it was extremely heavy for 1970. If you listen to it today, it sounds a bit quaint, but, uh, was pretty noteworthy at the time. I guess its biggest features, you can really hear how much their organ player wanted to be John Lord from Deep Purple. He wanted to be John Lord more than anything. <laughs> so the album was a modest success, not critically, but, if, you know, people bought it. And uh, the group, you know, as was the style at the time, recorded two more albums in 1971 that saw the band like trying to be a little bit more distinct so their first album of that year, Salisbury, actually had a sidelong suite with an orchestra, which is, you know, pretty okay. And then their next LP, Look at Yourself, was clearly the band's best to date. It's where things started to come together. 
the group had started to move beyond its influences and it landed on a sound that blended hard rock with some light progressive rock elements, like buoyed by David Byron's high pitched vocals and Ken Hensley's awesome organ playing. So that's the first album of theirs that's really like good, in my opinion. But uh, on each of those albums, they had a different drummer. They were just really cycling through drummers. And by that point, the core of the group had really solidified into Hensley, Box and Byron, which uh, really didn't leave much room for Paul Newton, who quickly got booted out of the band. So they hired a guy named Mike Clark to play bass, who lasted exactly one song, (laughs) which I will be discussing in a bit. And drummer Lee Kerslake, who, uh, if you've seen that name, it's because he was famously part of Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz band. And after they got rid of uh, Mike Clark, or Mike Clark left, uh, they got bassist Gary Fane, and that was the classic Uriah Heep lineup. So that lineup went into the studio and cut 1972's Demons and Wizards, which most fans generally consider the best album the band ever made. So, as a band with mildly progressive ambitions in the 1970s, they really only had one choice as to who would design the cover to their album, and that was Roger Dean, fresh off his gig designing album jackets for Yes. I'm guessing that that raised the album's profile a bit, as Dean's distinct cover art is pretty eye-catching. He also worked with them on their next album, uh, The Magician's Birthday, and the fact that he designed both album jackets probably led a lot of fans to consider those two albums to be the band's collective peak and kind of consider them part of a, you know, Night at the Opera, Day at the Races kind of diptych. And uh, while The Magician's Birthday is a good album, aside from, again, the uh, pretty iffy title track, I still think Demons and Wizards is the group's best album by a considerable margin, and it's the one time in the group's career where basically everything works. All right, so... Before we start on Demons and Wizards, we need to say thank you yet again to our Patreon subscribers, who are the reason we can keep this up without advertisements. If you'd like to join the circle of hands that keep us going, check out patreon.com slash discordpod, where you'll find almost 50 exclusive bonus episodes, in addition to some other fun perks. We also have a merch store at TeePublic, so just click on the link in the episode description or... Search for Discord Pod on TeePublic, and you can buy t-shirts, mugs, magic wands, grimoires, and all manner of things featuring our logo or some other goofy podcast jokes. If you have any feedback about the show or you just want to say hi, find us on Instagram at Discord Pod, or you can email discordpod at gmail.com. And now, without any kind of warning, a wizard is about to walk by. Track one is The Wizard. He was the wizard of a thousand kings chance to meet him one night wandering he told me tales and he drank my wine me and my magic man kind of feeling fine he had a glow 
Okay, so the first thing you'll notice about this track and the album in general when you put it on is just how crisp the production is. The acoustic guitar on this sounds absolutely great. I don't know what they did or how they did it, but just this album has some of my favorite production of any album I've heard. And it's really just this album. I don't think any of Uriah Heep's other albums like sound this good. I'm not sure what it is, but they nail it. This also has a trope that shows up throughout this album, which uh, they love to have like a really quiet bit and have it just kind of explode into the full band playing. And again, based on that production, it just always sounds great. So that's the first thing you'll notice. The second thing you'll notice is how utterly absurd the lyrics are. What? <laughs> which is sadly another thing that will continue throughout the album. Uriah Heep in this era are possibly the Dungeons and Dragonsiest band you'll ever hear. <laughs> like, I've been into goofy-ass prog rock for most of my life, so I'm kind of used to this sort of thing. But if you're not, I could see how that could be a bit off-putting. I mean... I think it actually gives this album a certain dumb charm. It dates it to almost exactly when it came out, but, and it's just so funny how the band is clearly taking this stuff seriously. And just the weird phrasing about like how I love David Byron singing about him and his magic man are kind of feeling fine. <laughs> One piece of interesting trivia about this, I think I mentioned earlier, they had a bass player named Mike Clark who lasted exactly one song. And this is that song. He showed up, he co-wrote this song, he played on it, and then he left. So that was his entire tenure with the band. He wrote one of the group's more well-liked songs, and out he went. He had a fairly successful career after this. Most notably, he played with Billy Squire for a while. So the guy who wrote The Wizard also appears on The Stroke. Oh, man. So <laughs> there you go. I just think it's interesting that a guy showed up, wrote a song that many fans like think is one of the band's best and just immediately disappeared. Well, I, I guess Mike Clark is my favorite member of Uriah Heep because <laughs> man, I love the wizard. Yeah. It's my favorite Uriah Heep song of any, any of their songs I've heard. And it's, it's by a considerable distance. I mean, it's up there. Yeah. And I, I don't want to sound like I like it ironically. I mean, do do people still do that? I think that's like, a lame old person thing now that people from my generation do. I think Gen Z killed that. Yeah. So yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm making fun of it, but I I also, I kind of am laughing at it, but I recognize how ridiculous it is and I genuinely love it for it. Like they're just so wholeheartedly going for it. And it's all set to... That kind of early 70s anthemic melody that makes you want to lock arms with people and sway back and forth. And it's it's just this wonderfully goofy song about a friendly wizard. And the, the way they shift from like this very lofty uh, fantasy type language to a line like me and my magic man kind of feeling fine. I just I can't hear that and not smile. Ah. Uh, I love the wizard. How about you, Dan? Do you also get the sense that him and his magic man might be uh, smoking marijuana? That's why they're feeling kind of fine. Possibly. No, I, I like it a lot. Um, I agree with Phil that the production here is really, really strong. I especially like the 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 vocal uh, echoes, that, like oh. the cosmic rise <laughs> into the the stratosphere as the band kicks in. The tape um, echo feedback, yes, yeah, it's nice. I like it. It's all over this album. <laughs> yeah, 
no, I, I feel like as far as like the silly vocal, the, the silly uh, lyrical themes. Yeah, it's part of the charm. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't as far as like whether you're making fun of the band by enjoying the song, whatever. I mean, it's it's just part of the it's the baked in nature of the song. And it's what makes it kind of great. <laughs> and as far as like that type of silliness, is this really much more silly than like some of like the worst of like Led Zeppelin four era Led Zeppelin mysticism. Oh no. I mean, not at all. Just a few degrees off from that, I think. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, aside from the inevitable spinal tap comparisons, <laughs> I actually detect more of like a tenacious D type. Oh, sure. From this. Oh yeah. Tenacious D. I would, I would bet anything that they've heard a lot of Uriah Heep. All of a sudden, there shined a shiny demon in the middle of the road. And he said, play the best song in the world or I'll eat your soul. Well, me and Kyle, we looked at each other and we each said, okay. Came to our heads Just so happened to be The best song in the world It was the best song in the world Look into my eyes And it's easy to see One and one make two Two and one make three It was destiny Once every hundred thousand years I do want to talk about the album cover for a second Yeah um, For years I thought Well that's a Roger Dean looking album cover until I found that it indeed was Roger Dean, because am I off base by saying it's maybe one of his lesser? It's kind of weird looking. It looks weirdly amateurish. It does. It's kind of rough. Yeah. It's it's almost like he painted a landscape and the band said, can you put a wizard in there somewhere? Because <laughs> he looks like he's just like slapped on top of it. Like the way I thought of it is if it's like it's as if like you wanted to get the Roger Dean album cover painted onto your van. <laughs> and this is what it wound up looking like. <laughs> That's what it looks like to me. Um, I actually think that the, his other uh, art, uh, the album after this, I think that that's it's a, a much cover better cover by a long shot. But uh, but no, the, the wizard is great. Uh, really, really strong opener. Very promising opener. Hope they keep it up. Yes, it's. Would I mean, they? would I like this song any more if it were just a traditional song about a relationship or something? No, I would not. Yeah, yeah. I think I like it better just being about the wizard of a thousand kings. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if you're in 1972, just go all out. All right. So let's move on to track two, Traveler in Time. Must be a time I'll get a chance to 
say Traveler in Time is about as close as Uriah Heep gets to what you traditionally call heavy metal here. Like, that opening riff is pretty killer. Like, and I love David Byron's vocals here, where he sings the verse in falsetto and then just kind of transitions to a more traditional, like, singing in the pre-chorus. Also love how, like, the drums and, like, the bass start going crazy when you get past that part. I think this song is a really good showcase for their new bass player, Gary Thane, because, like, he really goes nuts throughout this track and adds a ton to the atmosphere. He's a really solid presence throughout the album. He never really takes center stage, but he's got, like, an almost John Entwistle-ish ability to constantly be adding interesting color in the background. But uh, also, thinking of the goofy fantasy lyrics, I actually think these are pretty good. They're about a guy who is condemned to travel through time to help humanity as a way to atone for his past crimes, and he just desperately wants to go home. It's basically Quantum Leap in the form of a 70s rock song. (laughs) All right, Dan, what do you think of this one? I think it's a really strong track, too. Um, Yeah, I think, Phil, you mentioned how they kind of have a formula of doing these... uh, loud quiet loud sort of uh dynamics and it works really well here uh what it kind of evokes for me is early blue oyster cult there's a lot huh. of comparisons there i think yeah where they're, they're kind of back when they're kind of riding that line between psychedelic and hard rock uh and, and there's even moments here where to me dave byron sounds a bit like al bouchard mm-hmm. in huh. the chorus i heard it in a few spots now but this track i think was the most where that stood out to me It's really, it's really strong. Um, I like how they kind of went from the wizard as being this sort of like acoustic, mystical, you know, little floaty song into like a harder rock, mystic, harder. It's, <laughs> it's a, it's very good yeah. programming. It's an excellent track too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a really solid track too. I, I didn't pick up on the, the blue oyster cult similarities to me. This song, I, I just heard this is just a very good deep purple impression. I wouldn't say it's up there with the best Deep Purple songs I've ever heard, but if this were, you know, a bonus track on Machine Head, yeah, I'd I'd like it plenty. Uh, there's there's a little one little clever moment in this song I I like a lot. I don't know if it was intentional, but there's a part where he sings "Traveling in Time" and the downbeat shifts, hmm. like the song itself is traveling in time. I think that's a neat trick. Huh. we're done there let's move on to uh the song most of you are likely to know if you know any from this album easy living
All right, so Easy Living was the second single from Demons and Wizards, and it's probably the group's best-known song in the U.S. It hit the top 40, which is the only track the group ever recorded that did so. I mean, I'm not really sure how much it's endured, though. I don't think I've ever encountered this song in the wild. In fact, as far as I can remember, the only Uriah Heep song I've ever heard in the wild was The Wizard, when a local classic rock station was playing a suite of songs that had to do with wizards. And as you all know, I gauge whether a song has endured or not based on whether or not it was regularly played on Classic Rock 94.7 out of Washington, D.C. in the mid 90s. I want to know what those other wizard songs were. Yeah, really? I think they played like Black, Black Sabbath, the wizard. Um, <laughs> I forget what else they played. I mostly just remember when the wizard came on because I was like, the wizard, really? The classic rock station is playing this instead of 17 Led Zeppelin <laughs> songs in a row. <laughs> But yeah, I think this song rocks. I love the galloping rhythm. I love the vocals. But again, the real star of the show here is Ken Hensley's super fat organ tone. Like I mentioned earlier, he clearly worshipped John Lord from Deep Purple. And he's clearly imitating him. But, you know, if you're going to steal, like, there's a lot worse places you could steal from than the style of John Lord. Yeah. Here in this prison of my own making, year after day I organ just devours everything in its path. <laughs> and I think it's about as great as a like little two and a half minute pop song as you'll encounter. I guess this is also about as good a place as any to talk about the genre of Uriah Heep. I frequently see them called a progressive rock band. Like, are they? Because I mean, like, this is basically a nugget. Yeah, it's pretty concise. I don't know, like, Uriah Heep would occasionally attempt something that I would consider progressive rock. They do it a couple times on this album. I clearly don't think it's what they're best at. They're basically, I think, just kind of a hard rock band that brings in some arty elements that I kind of see as coming from the same school as like the Moody Blues, like all the yeah. like <laughs> vocals and stuff that are throughout this. Some of the songs like crossfading into each other. I mean, like, we've had the discussion about are the Moody Blues prog or not, but yeah, these guys just seem like they're a hard rock band that listened to, you know, In Search of the Lost Chord one too many times. I would not have expected when I went to this album to have a Blondie connection, <laughs> but uh, my God, is there any chance that Debbie Harry was into Uriah Heep in the 70s? That is an unmistakable call me chugga chugga. <laughs> like this, all I can hear when I hear this. Um, 
No, like Phil, I, I grew up listening to just endless hours of classic rock radio. Never once heard this. Um, so I don't know what Uriah Heap did to just not make it to standard boilerplate classic rock radio. Because um, I would have been happy to hear this trade in for Smoke on the Water every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, is it the most original song? No, but... It's pretty damn satisfying. It, it's 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 pretty great. Um, a lot of deep purple in this, but um, but still, uh, it's a solid rocker. Yeah, this for two and a half minutes. This makes me want to go out and buy an eight track player. <laughs> I feel like this probably sounds best when listened to on eight track. If I had kids, this is what I would blast when I dropped them off at school to embarrass them. <laughs> Buy an enormous Chevy van and, you know, crank yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the organ really is doing a lot of the heavy lifting here. I mean, it, Ken Hensley's organ sounds like it's got like giant exhaust pipes coming out of it. And he's just like driving <laughs> around with the, the power of his organ tone. <laughs> And there's not a ton you can say about this song because it's just such basic, dumb fun, but it does indeed rock. Yeah. Right. Why isn't it on the classic rock stations? I really don't know. It, it should, should be. be. It would fit it's, right yeah. in. It's like it's such like meat and potatoes 1972 rock. Yeah. Like it's perfect for it. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I, I want to say is... Uh, if somebody suggested to you that there should be a synthed out uh, Eurovision style pop cover of Easy Living, you might say, surely you can't be serious, but surely is serious. Clip. Life was difficult. The way it was. I was searching till this very day. shift That was by the the Dutch singer uh, Shirley Zvirus. I'm I'm not sure if I'm saying her last name right, but uh, I'll put a link to the video in the show notes because it's there's like interpretive dancers in the background, and one of them comes over to duet with her. It's it's all very dramatic, very very European. What year is that from? Uh, 1980. Oh wow. Hmm. And that's Easy Living has been covered a bunch in like I, I looked it up on who sampled. There's there's three uh, covers in Russian. There's two in Finnish. There's one in French. The other one I thought about clipping was there's 
it's part of a medley. It's from like a, a semi-instrumental dance party record. And they do Easy Living as part of a medley with the love theme from The Godfather and Honky Cat. <laughs> what? <laughs> sure. Just shove those pieces together. <laughs> Why not? All right. So let's move on then to track four. This is Poet's Justice, starring Janet Jackson. <laughs> Not really. Poets' Justice is a good example of the kind of power Uriah Heep were capable of generating when they were really firing on all cylinders. So I don't think this is quite as good a song as the three that came before it. It doesn't have, you know, anything quite as immediately catchy or gripping as, you know, the previous three songs, but the group just carries this through. Like, they just lock into an absolutely fantastic groove. Kudos especially to the rhythm section of Thane and Curse Lake here, because this might be their best performance on the whole album. I really like David Byron's like cool little ascending vocal melody. There's a really cool like shredding guitar solo from Mick Box towards the end of it. And I guess Ken Hensley is a little bit more restrained than he usually is in this track, but his organ here just fattens the sound up, and you can kind of hear him in the chorus just kind of going bow, 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 bow with it. So it's not the best song on the record, but if you just wanted me to point to a single track on this album to demonstrate like how well this band could work together as a unit and just how good they are together, I'd point to this one because everybody is just fantastic here. Everybody's playing real well, but nobody's really overshadowing anybody else either. They truly just sound like a terrifying unit on this one. Yeah, this is one where there are a few songs on this album where I like them more as they go along. Yeah. Like this one, the way it starts is fine. It doesn't have like the, the vocal melody doesn't jump out at me. It doesn't have like an instantly memorable riff. But as it keeps going and instrumentally, it's everybody starts going crazy. I really get into it. The My favorite part of the song is probably around three minutes in where Ken Hensley does that dissonant organ break. And that leads into uh David Byron hitting this ridiculous high note as the twin harmonized guitar leads come in.
if you're not imagining yourself just like flying around on a dragon at that moment, then I don't know what's going to do that for you. <laughs> the first like 30 seconds of this song, whenever it comes on, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's this one. This one's pretty good. And by the end of it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this one rules. Yeah. Uh, this is another one I, I have a, a clip for because on the deluxe version of Demons and Wizards, there's an alternative mix of the whole album. I don't know what the, the purpose of it was, but on uh, the alternate mix of Poets Justice, there is this little there's this little drum break at the beginning and they actually loop part of it. You can even hear like the the trail of the vocal reverb when it loops back around. It reminds me of uh, something you might hear on like Ultimate Breaks and Beats, which was a compilation that came out in the 80s. That was all just songs with cool drum breaks that basically like it didn't have a giant sticker on the front saying sample all these songs. But that's that's what Mm -hmm. it was for. And you would have things like honky tonk women with the intro looped a few times to make it easier to sample. And I was I was just kind of surprised nobody's this album has not been sampled very much. I just wondered why that was. It, it seemed like things like that moment there seemed like things hip hop producers would jump on, but no. Yeah, never, I think never so happened. Too. But Dan, what's your take? Side ones on a good roll. Um this was maybe like one of the less distinct ones, at least of the first few listens. But uh, every time I hear the album, like this one kind of jumps out at me a little more. I like what you said, how they're good at sort of revealing new things throughout the song as it kind of uh, yeah progresses forward. Like they kind of like will introduce new melodic ideas that uh, go, oh, yeah, this song. Oh, they are so um, good at arranging on this album. Yeah, yeah. And 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 like you said, Phil, they, they do play really well here. It's a good showcase for everybody. Um yeah, it's, it's maybe not the most like immediately ear catching one of the bunch, but uh, but I really like it. And again, it's it's it serves a good function as kind of like keeping things going on side one. All right. Yeah. Speaking of side one being on a roll, uh, we'll we'll see what we think of this one. <laughs> Track five is Circle of Hands. Circle of hands, cold spirits plan, searching my land for an enemy. Came across love's sweet cost, and in the face of beauty, evil was lost. I think this track is another good example of just how good Uriah Heep were at arranging things at this stage in their career. So I love at the beginning of this song if they have the, you know, church-like organ and then the band just comes crashing in, which is, you know, a trick they play a bunch of times, but it always works just because of how good they are at it. The bass is just fantastic when it comes in, like again, never overshadowing stuff, but just really adding a lot of color. 
I think David Byron's at nearly a vocal peak here. I think his the backing harmonies are great. There's this great melodic guitar solo from Mick Box in the middle, which it's not flashy because Mick Box is rarely flashy. And when he tries to be real flashy, I kind of wish he wouldn't. But uh, it fits the song perfectly. And then there's this, you know, really cool outro with like all these like guitar harmonics and, you know, all this really cool soloing. And, you know, the lyrics are ludicrous, but I mean, you've gotten used to that by this point in the LP, right? For me is one of the the spots on the album where uh, if I may quote the Pixies for a moment, uh, Uriah hit the crapper. <laughs> and it's not that I think it's it's such a bad song on its own, but it it wants so bad to be Court of the Crimson King. It really does. <gasps> oh. It's sort of like way back when we were talking about Nuggets, we talked about uh, Public Execution by Mouse and the Traps. Yes. And it's <laughs> that the, the song itself isn't horrendous or anything, but it's trying to be like a Rolling Stone. And that's <laughs> that's a, a hard thing to measure up to. Since this is your public execution, I think I'm gonna go right on ahead. Mailman brought your letter, babe, where you told me how you feel. And about the things he said he told you, and how it is, I'm such a hero. So I, th- I think this song kind of has the same problem. I, I don't hate it, though. I just I think it's a, a noticeable drop. It's very derivative. Yeah, it's a, it's a noticeable drop from the, the previous four, I think. I do like the line, today is only yesterday's tomorrow, but that was already a song by Lothar and the Hand People. (laughs) And today is only yesterday's tomorrow. Don't be too sure that things are what they seem. What I heard... With the shimmery organ, is it sounds like a co- like like it's it's copying from uh, Led Zeppelin's "Thank You." Oh, sure, that's what I heard. Um, which was never one of my favorite songs on Led Zeppelin too. By no, the way. So, I don't like that song really at all. <laughs> and so today, my world it smiles. Your hand in mine, we walk the miles. Thanks to you. It will be dark For you to me I'm the only one I'll 
so this is not exactly my cup of tea either until um the guitar solo then my ears perk up and that whole kind of build for that second half i really do like um especially that kind of like the two minute uh kind of coda crescendo where it's like the the two slide guitars it's kind of a, a classic uh last song on side one move of having just this <laughs> big kind of you know crescendo at the end uh, which i really like a lot but uh yeah the beginning is kind of like the first sort of like bump in the road for me with this album where i'm kind of like oh well you're a nice uh nice ride until uh <laughs> to this point but uh but yeah other, otherwise uh, I, I do like when the band starts playing, it's really good, but just the the organ stuff, not crazy about. Yeah, earlier I said like you know about the harmonics in the guitars, and that was just straight incorrect. It was not the guitar harmonics, and I don't know why I said that. Um, it's yeah, it's the slide guitars. I really love the way the slide guitars play against each other at the end of it. But yeah, I like this one. Yeah, clearly more than you two do, but uh, I do think it's the weakest song on side one because I think the other four sure. songs are just very very strong, but. I still think yeah. this is a pretty good way to close out the side. Yeah. All right. So let's flip the record over, unless you're listening on eight track. <laughs> Which it changed tracks like the middle of yeah. <laughs> track three. <laughs> anyway, track six is Rainbow Demon. of morning no one dared to stand in his way possessed by some distant calling riding on through night and day Well, I'll say right up front where if you want to make fun of Uriah Heep, <laughs> this is what? probably your best bet because it is fairly ridiculous. You know, especially, you know, in the chorus when he goes rainbow demon. <laughs> like it's, you know, but here's the thing. When I've gotten this deep into this album, I'm kind of in Uriah Heep mode. Yeah. And I've kind of like thrown my, you know, general concept of taste out the window. And I really enjoy this song. It's very plodding, but I don't mean that as an insult. It's just got this slow beat with, you know, Ken Hensley just pounding forward with his organ. It's a really cool groove and it's got this kind of ominous march sound to it. And again, the lyrics are absurd, but... I, get, I know I'm trying hard to defend, you know, liking this one because I'm in, I'm anticipating that y'all will like it less than I do. But I really do like this song. No, I like this one a lot. It's real slow and heavy. It's got that big ominous organ over the top of it. And this song to me sounds tailor made for 
Ronnie James Dio to sing. Oh, it's such a Ronnie James Dio mm-hmm. song. Yeah. I mean, it's called Rainbow Demon. He must have been so <laughs> jealous that he didn't come up with that title first. Because if not, then that's a missed opportunity. Maybe he thought it'd be too on the nose. Maybe it's it's <laughs> perfect for his whole style. But yeah, I think it's terrific. We've totally righted the ship now. How about you, Dan? Yeah, I like it. I mean, come on. At this point, we've all bought into this. So my, my wizard coat is firmly, uh, <laughs> firmly fastened to, to, to me. Uh, no, I kind of think it's the best when they just lean into this mode yeah. of uh, of the wizardry. Um, it is a bit plotting, but I kind of like it as like a, a as a an introduction to side two, kind of having just this like statement of purpose sort of thing, where it's a uh, very uh, kind of ominous in a very uh, cheesy mystical way. Um, might reach a record of the number of times seeing mystical in this episode for me, uh, but. No, I, I I am fully on board with this. Uh, silliness is a plus on this one. I'd Absolutely. Say. So I think one thing that shows just how effective the groove here is, is that uh, thing that you mentioned earlier, Mike, the deluxe edition of this that has the extended mixes. Hmm. There's an ex- there are like alternate mixes. There's a version of Rainbow Demon that's like two minutes longer. Hmm. And it doesn't really do anything else except just kind of repeat the stuff that's already in the song, which is probably why they cut it down. And I find myself thinking, I wish they just put this on the record because I could just listen to that groove for a long time. All right. Track seven is All My Life. Yeah, that one was kind of obvious, but I couldn't resist. Sorry, guys. That was All My Life by Casey and JoJo, which was the soundtrack to many a middle school slow dance back in the 90s. Uh, I was expecting the Foo Fighters. I considered that one, too. (laughs) Anyway, here's the Uriah Heap song.
is fine. It's without any sort of doubt the most forgettable song on the album. The opening riff kind of feels kind of clumsy, and the lyrics are dumb, but they're dumb in a different way than some of the other songs on this album. <laughs> like, they're dumb in, like, a stupid 70s way. I want to make love and it's gotta be you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> Um, there's a fun little outro with a bunch of falsetto vocals, but aside from that, it's pretty forgettable. It's also short. So unless you're like completely allergic to all the goofy fantasy stuff throughout the rest of this record, I can't imagine very many people who have this record who don't think that this is the worst song on it. Prove me wrong. Yeah, I'm not (laughs) feeling this one. Uh, This just sounds like bad deep purple to me. (laughs) Like the 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 leaps for the Ian Gillen uh, vibrato falsettos, Ugh, yeah, just does not I agree mean, with me. I mean, I am going to downgrade that to bad Grand Funk Railroad. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably it's probably more accurate. Yeah, no, this is this was definitely the uh, the the worst of the bunch for me on every listen. I think it did not ever really rise with repeated listens. Yeah, I don't like this one very much at all. I mean, the the opening section is all right, but I, I liked it a lot better when it was called I'm Coming On by 10 Years After. Yeah. Maybe better, maybe bad, but I gotta do something to rock on that. Maybe cooler, maybe hot, but I gotta do something to need a lot. Oh, baby, don't cry, 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 shouldn't do that. And the ending section is... Well, I'd, I'd call it Bad Nazareth, personally. <laughs> when he starts doing that, I, 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 yeah. That's what singers do when they're confident that the song will have faded out by now. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering why it's here. Maybe just a, because does anybody like it? So this is hardly a scientific study. But uh, last week I decided to look up like, you know, what people on progarchives.com had to say about this album. And I don't remember seeing a single person who had anything nice to say about this song. <laughs> I almost wonder if they felt they needed to hedge their bets and have a like straight ahead rocker on here that wasn't mm. about wizards and shit, and they just needed something kind of like straight they could throw at the radio if they needed to. They had one. It was called Easy Living. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Why is this here? I don't like, know. Because I mean, the album's not that long. It's like 40 minutes long. But, you know, cut this and the album's 37 and a half minutes long. And, you know, that's, that's still, still a good length. That's still plenty long enough for like a 70s rock album. Yeah, yeah, didn't need to be there. All right, well, let's get out of here. <laughs> Move on to track eight, which is not a John Prine cover. It's called Paradise.
Okay, so off the bat, like on some versions of this album, I've seen Paradise linked with the next track, The Spell. And I've seen, you know, a lot of people, again, like looking at like Prague archives and stuff, like people like consider this and The Spell to be a suite. And aside from the fact that there's like a really kind of half-hearted effort to like crossfade these two songs together via like the style of the moody blues... I don't really see how they connect. Like, the lyrics are about totally different things. This one's about the aftermath of a broken relationship, which actually has some of the better straight lyrics that the band wrote. It's not embarrassing sounding. While the spell is about... We'll we'll get to the spell. (laughs) But, uh... Have a bleeding guess. (laughs) I had to get that out of my system just because I so frequently see people consider this and the spell part of a suite, and I just don't agree at all. But anyway, so this song is basically just two sections. The first section works really well, despite how incredibly simple it is. It's just two chords alternating slowly, and that's about all it is. But again, the production really elevates it. Like, much like on some of the earlier tracks that emphasize the acoustic guitar, like The Wizard, there's something just otherworldly about how the acoustic guitar sounds on this. It just sounds really good, even though it's not really doing much. And David Byron also sounds, you know, really great here. He doesn't do any of like the kind of goofy vocal histrionics he does in other parts of the album. And he just kind of keeps things classy, which I think fits what the song sounds like. Then about halfway through the track, we kind of shift into an extended coda where Byron sings an ominous melody in a kind of sing-song fashion over a dark-sounding chord sequence. What's the use? You turned me loose and left me here to cry. Where's the love we talked about? Where's my sunny sky? So yeah, like the track just kind of continues to build its intensity throughout until it gets to the end. It kind of sounds a lot like the worm segment of uh, Yes's Starship Trooper, Hmm. the way it's just kind of building and building and building, although it doesn't really build to anything because of that aforementioned attempt to link it into the spell. But I think it's really cool sounding, and it's one of my favorite moments on the album. Like I get it stuck in my head, you know, all the time. This is one of my favorites on the album, actually. Um. I really like it. Um, it just, you know, it's super simple, but I just like the nice chord changes, especially like the way the the high bass line kind of floats on top of the the the, the chord progression. Um, I think part of what I like is that it's one of the rare moments of subtlety on the album. Yes, where they're kind of just spreading out and kind of, uh, you know, actually like evoking a mood and an atmosphere. Uh, 
I don't know. I just really, really like it. It almost has a vibe of like, kind of like when Ween does some of their more sort of uh, yes. spacey kind of stuff, uh, which I really, really like. Um, and like Phil said, the the, the buildup at the end is is really effective too. But I don't know. This is the one that it kind of like with repeated listens really uh, started to jump out at me more and more as being yeah. one of the ones I like the most. Yeah, I'd be willing to bet that the whole impetus for writing this song was that they found that one really cool sounding guitar chord and decided to just write a whole song around it. Dan had mentioned yeah. earlier that it's, it's that Ween used the exact same chord in their song Fluffy from yeah. 12 Golden Country Greats. <laughs> Fluffy furry buddy chewed his leg on the porch Why'd you do it fluffy on the porch? It took me two weeks to identify <laughs> what song I'd heard that chord from, and that's what it was. But yeah, I, I like this one. The sound of the acoustic guitars is doing a lot for it. Like, I don't, I don't know much about recording acoustic guitars, you know, beyond put the microphone in front of it. But uh, they, they sprinkled some fairy dust on it. Uh, I think the extended coda, I think it goes on a little long, but I, I like what they're doing with it. I like the, the back and forth dialogue uh, approach to it. But I, I feel a flanged out crossfade coming on, and that must mean we're about to head into the final track. Track nine is The Spell. Okay, so this one. <laughs> I like the spell overall, but it is a mess. Uriah Heep, like I mentioned before, they're really not a progressive rock band. They're just kind of a hard rock band with some arty elements. And when they try to do really progressive stuff, like it always sounds a bit disjointed. So this song starts off like some kind of weird fast boogie rocker, and it's fine. I mean, it sounds pretty standard, and it's never really impressed me that much. But uh, I do need to cite the lyrics because they are something. <laughs> Quote, I will cast the spell. Be sure I cast it well. I will add a fire kindled with desire. I'll fill you with fear so you know I'm here. And I won't be treated like a fool. Thanks. <laughs> so 
that section ends and then it suddenly turns into a very pretty ballad with an arrangement that kind of reminds me of Firth of Fifth by Genesis, except this actually came out a year before that. So that part's, you know, really good stuff. And then the song cycles back to the boogie rock section again. And I just don't think the two parts connect like at all. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like Question by the Moody Blues, except again, like it just sounds disjointed. It doesn't work. Like, I think there's some really great music in parts of this track, but I just don't think it coheres. But I mean, I should like like learn to love what I have because they would try to do something similar on their next album with the track The Magician's Birthday, which is uh mm, what's the most polite way I can <laughs> put my opinion on the track The Magician's Birthday? It's ungood. <laughs> is it double plus ungood? It might be double plus ungood. <laughs> All right, Dan, what do you think of the spell? Well, one note I have is Dave Byron is clearly a gifted vocalist, but there are moments where I wish he'd put a little more grit into his voice. Mm. And at the start of this, he just sounds so show tunesy in a mm. way that just kind of bugs me. He shouldn't me. be singing that kind uh, of song. He shouldn't be singing this kind of song if he can't like grit it up any. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> And he almost gives like Shadows of the Night a run for their money with the most <laughs> vanilla delivery possible. Whoa, yeah. As for the the song itself, I, I'm not keen on the the generic boogie sections. Uh, it's just you know, there's just nothing there for me. Uh, but when it when it shifts into the the more uh, the instrumental bits where it starts to sound like metal era Pink Floyd. Yeah, that's where, that's where I get a little more interested uh, in, in the way that the song kind of wraps up. But uh, yeah, this one's messy. It's, yeah. it's a bit of uh, just kind of cramming parts together and hoping that it sounds like a well thought out suite, which it really is not. Yeah, I like the spell more than I think I do. I'm not sure if it's better than it sounds or it sounds better than it is, but I'm not a big fan of the the main boogie song section. But every time it gets to that middle section, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I actually do like this one. It's just everything in the song that isn't the song that I <laughs> like, like. For a long time, I would always forget that that middle section was coming. And I would just right. hear like that down to 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 down. I'd be like, oh, it's this one. And then I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, yeah but it is good. <laughs> There's all this other stuff that I always forget is there. Um, but I. 
I do have to, I, I do enjoy the way he sings. I will cast the spell as if he's rolling a 12 sided die while he's singing it. <laughs> but the falsetto in that opening section is mm. that's a choice. Uh, yeah, it's not what I would have made. Um. No, <laughs> but uh, there's enough good happening in this song that I'm glad it's around. You just have to wait for it to it's it's a wait the good parts coming kind of song yeah but that brings us to the end of the album phil what are your final thoughts so i just think this is a really solid like 70s rock album that more people should hear again it's not completely perfect there's you know a couple of goofy moments and there's one song on here that i just straight out don't think is very good but there's some really unique stuff here and some really cool sounding stuff here. And I think people should, you know, seek this one out. And I guess, you know, I think some people have avoided it because um, I often see it like because there's people who don't like progressive rock and they see it get the progressive rock label and it's really not progressive rock. And on the other side of the equation, I've seen some progressive rock people who don't like this album because it was sold to them as progressive rock and it's really not progressive rock. So I just think if you're into like, you know, kind of cool organ driven, like fuzzy 70s fantasy hard rock, like you should really give this one a spin. All right, Dan, how about you? Well, again, I went to this fairly blind and I'd be lying if I said my expectations going in were terribly high. Um, so I, I was pleasantly surprised with this. Um, you know, there's definitely elements that, you know, I, I think kind of show why they haven't quite left their mark uh, as like a one of the quote unquote important classic rock bands. There's certainly, a, you know, some derivative uh, elements. You're, you're, you're deep purple. Uh, but for the most part, the, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty strong album, I think. Um, and, I, and I'm glad that I finally found an excuse to listen to a Uriah Heap album after scowling at their album covers for <laughs> 25 years. Yeah, I can't say this album made a Uriah Heap fan out of me, but I do really enjoy most of it. You can pick at its imperfections all you want, but, you know, if, if there's any part of you deep down that, that secretly wishes you drove a van with a wizard painted on the side, you gotta hear this immediately. <laughs> so, Phil, somebody hears Demons and Wizards, they like Demons and Wizards, what should they hear next? Okay, so here's where I, you know, have to say I'm not a huge fan of Uriah Heep because I went and bought a bunch more of their records. I've probably got like 12 of their records and I've heard more. They've got a lot of records, by the way. I couldn't believe how how yeah. they are still releasing albums. They eventually became just a complete revolving door, like around guitar player Mick Box. Like if you look at them now, it's like there's nobody from the original band <laughs> left and they've kind of been... Nothing but a revolving door since probably the early 80s, maybe even the late 70s. But most of that stuff's not that great. Like uh, some of their modern albums are kind of like they're from the la their, their last couple are pretty solid, but you don't need to hear them. I would say like if you like Uriah Heep, there are three albums you need in your collection. One of them is Demons and Wizards. And one of them is the album that came out right before it, Look at Yourself, which is you know, the one that has a mirror on the front cover. So you can look <laughs> at yourself, man. Look at yourself. <laughs> you, the listener. 
but that's the one where their sound like really cohered. And it's also, you know, among their heavier early albums and you, it's really solid. And in particular, there's actually like a 10 minute suite on there where they actually do make everything work together called July Morning. And at the very least, that one's worth hearing. There I was on a July morning Looking for love With the strength of a new day dawning And the beautiful sun At the sound of the first bird singing was leaving for home With the storm and the night behind me And a road of my own With the day came the resolution I'll be looking for you La 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 And the next album I would recommend is the album that came after this, The Magician's Birthday, which, again, I've said many times throughout this episode that I don't like the title track, and the title track is like more than a quarter of the record. (laughs) So uh, make what you will of that. But all of the other songs on that album are really solid. They're really clearly still working in the demons and wizards mold. And even though I don't think it's as good as this album, they've still clearly got everything going on. And... In particular, there's a bunch of good songs. The single from the album, Sweet Lorraine, is just a great 70s hard rocker. Dan, you have anything to recommend? Well, this is the only Uriah Heap album I've heard, so anything I recommend is going to be a stretch. Um, so what I will recommend, I'm going to loop back to the comment earlier and recommend uh, Blue Oyster Cult's debut album from the same year, uh. I believe. Um, I hear a, a, a fair amount of kind of similar music DNA. Blue Oyster Cult, uh, obviously they have their own brand of weird uh, self-mythology uh which is very unique to them. Um, but I hear a lot of similarities to this specific era of kind of hard rock was sort of like aspirations beyond like just standard hairy chested seventies rock. There's, you know, just weird little twists of 
you know, in the case of Uriah Heap, it's the more wizardry type stuff. But let's just call it kind of here. Similar things geared a little more towards sci-fi, but uh, we covered secret tre- uh, secret treaties a few years ago. Yeah, real early in the Three or four real years early ago. in the podcast. Yeah, um, but I always like that first Blister Cult album just because it's kind of a, a weird one in their their early catalog uh, that I like a lot. So that that's what I would go with. <laughs> For me, I also have not heard much other Uriah Heap, so uh, I don't have anything else from their catalog to recommend. But I will say, if you like demons and wizards, and you also like rainbows, then you absolutely need to hear the album Rainbow Rising by Rainbow. If you don't know Rainbow at all, it was... Richie Blackmore's band after he left Deep Purple. And it's easy to forget that because Ronnie James Dio was their singer and he just tends to dominate things. It's just about the zenith of what I guess you could call dragon rock. Uh, if that sounds like a good idea to you, like hear that album immediately. I'm going to clip a song that Dio himself described as a simple tale about a wizard, and that is Stargazer. Also, uh, Amanda isn't here, so I'm going to have to recommend a Nazareth album in her place. If you can find the UK version of Hair of the Dog that doesn't have Love Hurts on it, or at least relegates it to a bonus track, because I, I don't like that song. But if you can find the version that doesn't have it, that's some, some real great good old 70s rock. I think I'm going to clip the song Please Don't Judas Me, which uh, 
is the album closing epic, and it has has a little of that uh, mystical vibe that Uri Heap are going for on this one. So, next episode, because we absolutely hate being predictable, Amanda will be talking about live, almost, by the progressive bluegrass band, The Dillards. Bluegrass's prog roll credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Demons and Wizards and other collectible figurines or albums by Uriah Heap at your local record store or directly from the band at uriah-heap.com. You can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at Discord Pod on Instagram for news and updates. Editing is by Rich Bunnell. And special thanks to uh, somebody for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album, and keep us cool as you can. <laughs> <laughs>